Good afternoon, everybody. We're in the second week of our series about the greatest commandment as found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. If you recall, this is what it says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God and the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. Last week, we looked at the, into the multifaceted meaning of Shema, or hear. This week, as Lisa mentioned, we're going to focus on love. And the Hebrew word for love is ahava. So what are some ways, um, as we think about love, that you would fill in the blank here? I love. Anybody? I love what? I love you. What else? I love to tell the story. Very good, Lisa. One or two more? <laughs> Actually, that is a great um, illustration of what I meant by fill in the blank, right? We, we in our culture, use love a lot, right? From everything from, your, from God to your wife to donuts. <laughs> um, our answers show that it can mean and apply to many different things. And in some respects, the word is used so much that in our culture that, it, at least in my opinion, it, it devalues it sometimes, right? So simple economics. The more we have of something, what? What's the price of something that there's a lot of? It's cheap. Um, and in our culture, right, do you remember that Tina Turner famously sang what? What's love got to do with it, right? Big song. When it comes to the Lord our God, the answer to that question is everything. In fact, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, it tells us that God is love. My handy um, Bible, which is over there, it's a New American Standard Bible index, says this. Love is a central theme of scripture and is a primary characteristic of God's nature and the central demand of human life, both in relation to God and other people. So today, the first thing I'd like to cover is the fact that the greatest commandment is a commandment. The wording here is, you shall love. So my husband and I both work for the federal government, and we do a lot of work with government contracts. And early on in my career, I learned that language matters. If I wanted a contractor specifically to do something that was unequivocal and I could hold them accountable, I had to use the word shall. Not the contractor will, not that the contractor should, not that the contractor may, but the contractor shall. When we think about love in this context, though, shall, it seems a little unnatural. <laughs> if you're a teenager and you have a crush on a girl in your, or guy in your math class, can you imagine someone coming up to you and saying, you know what, I demand or you shall love this other person over here in this other classroom that you've never even given a thought to. Or maybe your friend demands of you, you must or you should love olives or sushi when you don't really like them at all. Or your spouse that says something like, you gotta love this TV show, it's so good, but you've watched it and you're like, I don't really think so. Commanding or demanding love is counterintuitive when we think of love as a feeling. Don't get me wrong, love is uh, part of love is feeling and part of loving God. If you've ever fallen in love or thought you were in love, do you remember how much you thought about that person? You wanted to spend as much time as possible 
with them. You wanted to learn about them. You wanted to give up some of your activities. You wanted to spend as much time with them. Maybe you even like gave up some of your obligations. That's a great feeling. God wants us to feel that way about him too. And that makes sense. If we love God, we'll want to spend time with him in worship and in prayer and then learn more about him. Reading our Bible, maybe go to a Sunday school class or a small group study. But if love is just a feeling, we run the risk of becoming, and this is, I got this from um, a source, we run the risk of becoming spiritual infatuation addicts that a, a pastor named Brian McLaren describes as people who wander from church to church looking for just the right combination of a tear-evoking message and heart-swelling music to float away in a spiritual euphoria. My joke here is, is I bet you they were not Methodist. It's a joke here. All right, so love must mean something more than a feeling because I think we talked about that. I think you said that in Max Licato's thing. Feelings fluctuate. They come and go. So love has to be something more. Last week, we learned that the Hebrew language has far fewer words than English. Did I say that right? The Hebrew language. It is a full-bodied language with layers and depth. Amy, sh Amy showed us that though Shema is translated as here, it really means here listen, and obey. And in fact, overall, the Hebrew language actually focuses on action rather than mental states or emotions. And the same is true of ahava, the Hebrew word for love. Ahava is used in the Bible to describe many different kinds of love in addition to the feelings of what you might describe as romantic love. We have parental love. We have, um, you can see that through Abraham's love of his son Isaac. You have brotherly love, just as David and Jonathan loved each other. Or maybe even love for a king, the way the Jewish people loved King David. Even further, in ancient treaties, sometimes at the end of a war, the two countries would form a treaty, a losing king and a winning king. They used the word ahava to convey a pledge of loyalty. And in that case especially, not much in the way of feelings involved at all. So to me, all of this means is that ahava includes intentionality and action. If God is commanding us to love, then evidence of love will be the action and obedience to God. When Lisa read the Old Testament reading this morning, it is packed full of verbs. Fear, walk, fear is in, in the verb, not the, the noun there. Fear, walk, love, serve, and observe. Or in my version of the Bible, it says keep. If we have ahava, then we do. And we must do even when we don't feel like it. Sounds hard, but I think we all know how to do this. For those of us with children, when, the when we had babies and they were crying in the middle of the night, three hours after you fell asleep, did you feel like getting up and attending to them? My guess is no. But guess what? You did it anyway because you love them. In my own life, my mom suffers from tachycardia, which is a condition where your heart rate increases drastically, like up to 180. When that happens to her, she gets really afraid. She gets nervous, anxious. It's almost like she can't function. She wants somebody there. She calls me. doesn't matter if it's in the middle of my work day. It doesn't matter if it's 9.30 at night and I'm in my pajamas ready to go to bed or even 6 a.m. I can tell you, I do not feel like going over to her house, but I do it anyway because I love her. 
and teenagers, though we don't have too many here today, we have a couple, you may not feel like doing a lot of things your parents tell you to do, like clean your room. And you may even procrastinate, but I bet you, you eventually do them, and you do that because you love your parents. You might not think that's why you do it. You might be fearing punishment, but it is you're doing it because you love your parents. For me, and when I went to look at this word ahava this week, to, it ended up being that ahava really in the context of love the Lord your God is an utter commitment to loyalty towards God, the one we obey as evidence of that love. And so you, you just might find that as you do, feelings may follow, the exact opposite of how we usually approach things, right? Usually we do things because we love. Sometimes when we do things, we find that the feelings comes. Um, the feelings come afterwards. And that's actually counterintuitive, right? Counterintuitive, but when has God ever done anything that was like as we expected? You can say, okay, great, that's what ahava is. But again, in my study this week and in reflecting on what I wanted to talk about, I wanted to touch on one more thing. We're learning about a handful of Hebrew words in our series of in the greatest commandment and then trans and that translating them from the original Hebrew word into a single English word is challenging. Of course, in the Bible, especially in, or in the in the Old Testament, there are many more words that originate from Hebrew. Yet the vast majority of us are not going to be biblical scholars or masters of divinity or anything like that. Consider this. The Hebrew language relies on the rich contextual world in which the Hebrew people lived for complete understanding. No studying necessary. When I th and an example of this might be for you all to think about these sentences. I went for a run today. I have a run in my stockings. I have, I'm having a really good run of good fortune. Would you run to the store for me? Run is the same word in all of those sentences, but doesn't mean the exact same thing. I bet you all knew that without even thinking, probably because you were exposed to it throughout your whole entire life, different people talking to you in different contexts, just living your day in and day out in English-speaking America. So I'm in a Bible study with some of you, and we're studying this book, Reading the Bible with Rabbi Jesus by Lois Verberg. And this week, we were discussing a chapter um, in which she actually brings up many more um, words in the Hebrew language that we're not covering in the greatest commandment, but same thing, words like follow or um, some other ones. And in reading the explanation of the deeper and contextual meanings and in our discussion, and I raised this there, I'm like, I feel like I already knew all this stuff. Why is that? And I feel the same way when I was learning about the the word ahava and the many layers that ahava may mean when you say the word love. And again, I'm not a biblical scholar. I do not have a college degree in this. And quite frankly, I wouldn't say I've spent an extensive amount of my life studying the Bible this way. But yet I knew. So here's a way to think about that. We can know people on different levels depending on how much and how long we are around them or living with them. Um, I'll walk you through an example here So about myself. So this week coming up, I'm participating on a panel at an industry event talking about artificial intelligence and some other stuff. And to do that, it's for, a f I would probably suggest, a fairly large audience. Many people I don't know. So I had to write a bio. So the people will read my bio, and they'll know a little bit about me. 
but my coworkers know even more since we are working, they are working with me day in and day out. But yet, they still don't know everything about me because they've only worked with me in the context of the job. They don't know a lot about me in my home, church, or community context. But my family knows a whole heck of a lot. They know me, they know my nature, and they know what I'm trying to convey even when I don't use long explanations. Sometimes they know what I mean even when I don't say a word. Oh, look. They know me well through years and years of living with me, especially my kids. They've spent their whole life with, with me. So they know nothing more, and they can, it's how when Mike calls one of them and says, hey, your mom left her phone, and she's not going to be around it for, you know, a couple hours, the one daughter replies, classic. <laughs> she knows me really well. When we think about Ahava, it is simply the nature of God, and when we know him well, we will understand Ahava intuitively. When, and thinking about our walk with God, you may have heard phrases like accepting Jesus as your Lord and Savior, or inviting him into your heart, or being adopted into God's family. John chapter 1, verse 12 says this, but as many as received him, to them he gives us the right to become children of God. As we become children of God, we live with him. As the well-known hymn, I serve a risen Savior, says, he lives within my heart. The more time you live your life with him, the more you will know him, his nature, and with the Holy Spirit within you to help you, the more you will understand the deep, layered meanings of the words in the Bible, like Ahava. I talk really fast this week, so you get a short sermon. We will continue to study the greatest commandment in the next three weeks of our series, and study is definitely good. But knowing him is even better. As we leave here today and you go about your week, Try to notice different examples of ahava in terms of doing, whether that's your action or somebody else's actions. It can be as simple as seeing somebody on the street stopping to help somebody they don't know. Or you're in a store and you see a manager taking their time and patience with an employee who's having trouble. Or it could be your spouse who has to take action and deal with your wife's dead car battery, even if you don't feel like dealing with the hassle and that happened this week for us. But I would also uh, invite you to take an intentional look at areas in your life where you can be more obedient, which is what we've learned, um, which as we've learned is ahava. That sounds really scary, or at least for us, right? Like, oh my gosh, there's so many things that God asks of me in the Bible. How can I possibly do all of the things he commands? But don't be afraid of that. 1 John chapter 5, verse 3 says, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. But the clause ends with this, and his commandments are not burdensome. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your ahava and a deeper understanding of just what ahava means. I pray that you dwell in all of our hearts to live with us so you, we know what ahava means even beyond our intellectual study. I pray that in our upcoming weeks of teachings about heart, soul, and strength, that your ahava is revealed even more. In Jesus' name, amen.